Thanks so much to Andrew for the conversation. To learn more about Andrew, please check out the link in the podcast description for this episode. So this is the part of the episode where I'm going to tell you about Autism Personal Coach and how we can be helpful in your life. Did you know that Autism Personal Coach provides extraordinary support to live self-sufficient and purpose-driven lives through our customized coaching? If this is something that you're interested in learning more about, please visit AutismPersonalCoach.com for more information. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Autism Stories. And if you did, if you could tell a friend, foe, or anyone you know about it so they could have the same enjoyable and educational experience as you when listening to Autism Stories, it would be very much appreciated. Until next time, I'm Doug Bletcher of Autism Personal Coach. Talk to you then. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the final episode for the year of Autism Stories. I'm your host, Doug Bletcher, the founder of Autism Personal Coach. Autistic people are the true experts of the autistic experience, and Autism Stories is where we interview autistic people to learn from their stories, experiences, and get their insights. If you'd like to be notified about each week's episode of Autism Stories, we suggest you subscribe on your favorite podcast listening platform. We would also appreciate it if you could give us a positive rating and review as it will help others to learn about Autism Stories. Are you autistic and believe you process sounds differently than so many people around you? Well, you're not alone. And on this episode of Autism Stories, Andrew Huggo joins us to discuss this as part of founding the Oral Diversity Project, Digital Culture, and the importance of transdisciplinarity in his career. We hope you enjoy today's conversation. Andrew, thanks so much for joining me today. You're welcome. I'd like to start our discussion off by learning where does your story in the autistic community begin? Well, I suppose it begins in 2018, August, when I got my diagnosis. So like for a lot of people, I imagine the diagnosis is a kind of crucial point. Although I don't even like my diagnosis, I, I tend to say professionally identified, you know, because I don't see it as a medical condition, really. But, but anyway, we'll call it diagnosis, because that's what the psychologists call it. But I uh, had a couple of years leading up to that point, where it was fairly obvious, or it became increasingly obvious to me that, that I was autistic. So by the time I got to the actual diagnosis part, it was pretty much a foregone conclusion, I felt. So I, it really started because my daughter-in-law, who is a school teacher who, who deals with autistic children and is therefore trained to spot the characteristics, I know mm-hmm. said symptoms, the characteristics of autism, she spotted things in me and remarked to my wife, who immediately sort of agreed. And so eventually they, they said something to me and I, I was very sceptical at first and just said, well, you know, don't be ridiculous, you know. I imagine I said the same sort of things that a lot of neurotypical people say, you know. So things like, oh, well, uh, I can't be autistic. I, I've got a, you know, a happy marriage. I can't be autistic. I've got a successful career, you know, all that kind of thing. Of course, I now know that that's complete nonsense. And, uh, <laughs> it's perfectly possible to have those things uh, be autistic. So, but what happened was, like, a, like any good professor, I went off and started researching 
the topic and of course fairly quickly realized oh hang on a minute <laughs> this is actually describing my entire life very accurately i mean it was quite uncanny really i guess i'm i'm a classic autistic man i mean i, I fit the profile more or less exactly so there you go so anyway the answer to your question is 2018 uh, i was age 60 at the time so i'm a late diagnosed autistic man I really like what you said about like not feeling comfortable with the word diagnosis because I've always felt yucky, you know, whatever like that's brought up. It feels it feels too much like um, part of the medical model. Yeah, yeah, exactly. I, I mean, and um, of course, people um, self-diagnose. I, I mean, you, you don't need to have some kind of clinician tell you that you're autistic you can figure it out for yourself um uh, and many people do and that, that to me that's absolutely fine also as we know the, the clinicians have uh, really it's a work in progress their idea of what autism is i mean you, they don't actually define it very well i think and of course they as we all know they talk about it in terms of deficits and you know syndromes and all this kind of thing well i can see why they end up at that and I guess to make a diagnosis, that's what they have to do. But I, dis I disagree with it. I mean, I just think I don't see it that way. I think there are situations where uh, I have problems, uh, like any autistic person. But there are also situations where I flourish. And it, it really, I guess that's true for non-autistic people too. So I think it's just a difference. It's a, neuro, uh, a neurotype with a set of characteristics that are really different. And I think that's the thing that... I focus on. So for me, I, the great sort of affirmative aspect of getting the diagnosis was the acknowledgement of difference and the realisation that what I'd felt all my life was actually the case, that uh, I really, really am different from the vast majority of other people. And this isn't just some kind of imagined thing, you know. So like a lot of autistic people, I spent a lifetime trying to sort of... Uh, judge myself by the criteria of non-autistic people and then and then getting very uh, sort of perplexed and upset even about the fact that I don't seem to be able to uh, function in that way and going through all sorts of processes to try and understand that and rationalize it and accept it and all of that kind of thing and now thanks to this diagnostic procedure I can now say, well, hang on a minute, I've got a recognised condition that is, it has certain characteristics that are just, you know, wired, hardwired into me, as it were, and were there from birth. No doubt you've had the same experience with your diagnosis. It, you know, you, you go back into your childhood and start to realise all sorts of things about why things were the way they were and what happened and, you know, it sometimes it's a bit sad sometimes it can be quite joyous so you it, it cuts both ways you know but i'm glad i've got the diagnosis i'd rather have it than not but uh, sometimes it can be a bit of a a bit difficult to accept and you know coming to terms with it and sort of you know thinking things through i don't know whether you find this but i find almost every day there's a there's several small moments during the course of a day when I suddenly go, oh, hang on a minute. <laughs> Ooh, oh, that's autistic. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they're memories. Sometimes they're things that happen during the day. And it is, the day is just peppered with these little mini 
epiphanies where you just suddenly go, oh, God, now I understand why that's the... And I'm still getting that, what, five years after being diagnosed, you know. It, there was a lot more of it immediately after diagnosis, but now there's less of it, but it's still there every day. I have these little little moments of realisation. And you kind of try and keep track of them, but it's really hard to do because they, they come and go so quickly, you know. But that's a kind of part of the joy of, of having a diagnosis, I guess. I can definitely relate to a lot of that. Now, um, you are the uh, deputy director of the Digital Culture Institute at the University of Leicester. Is that pronounced correctly? Uh, it's, it's actually pronounced Leicester. Uh, American Le people always uh, struggle with this word. Leicester. Uh, yeah. Okay. It's Leicester. Okay. It's a, it's a small city in the middle of England. I mean, it's sort of bang in the middle, really. Yeah. So, so what's kind of your responsibilities as uh, the de deputy director? So I've got various things I have to do. I, this institute is pretty new. It's only uh, formed a few months ago. So it's a new venture by the university, and it's one of five research institutes. Leicester is a very um, research-intensive university, so we're driven by research. My job in the institute is, first of all, to lead one of the research themes, which is on creative and cultural technologies. And then I also run a studio, which I've kind of created, called the Digital Culture Studio. We had an event in there this morning. So, for example, we had uh, in that event a load of virtual reality heritage going on. We had, and I did a demonstration of music made with brainwaves. So I, I had this composition and performance system that r uses my unconscious mind to create music. We can talk more about that and autism if you like. It's very, very linked to autism. The Digital Culture Studio is that kind of place. There's stuff going on in it. There's people doing research in there. There's interesting things happening. Then I have a lot, a lot of responsibilities relating to people. So, for example, the external partners of the Institute, early career researchers, because I'm a, an older professor, part of my role is to help to develop early career researchers. I supervise PhD students. I appoint fellows of the Institute. So we have a, a group of fellows, some of them in the university, some of them external. I work with the advisory board and with management as well. I have a responsibility for some income generation, so I put in funding bids and, in fact, I've just had one succeed today, so uh, that's nice. So I, I get funding for research and, and I also do my own research, which at the moment is driven very much by our all diversity, this, this concept of everybody hearing differently. Well, I think we're going to talk about that later, so we'll come on to that, but... So I do my own research, I write books and papers, I write music, I give conference presentations, lectures, or seminars, all that sort of thing. So when I think about digital culture, one of the things that I think about is that how can it make employment more accessible for autistics? How important do you see digital culture in getting autistics needs met in the workplace so that we can do our jobs to the best of our ability? Well, I thought about this one, this question. I, I mean, it depends on the job, really. I think there are some jobs where it really helps and other jobs where it might not so much. I think the pandemic was very important for revealing to neurotypical employers some of the possibilities 
for uh, working with autistic employees. You know, I, some autistic people flourished during the pandemic. I did. I, I loved it. Not, I didn't love the pandemic, but I loved uh, lockdown, if, as it were. And social distancing, I just thought was brilliant. I felt I'd been training for that all my life, you know. So uh, I did well in the pandemic, uh, and I enjoyed working from home. But I, I know that's not true for everybody. So I think a lot of people struggled during the pandemic. So I, I think whether you struggled or whether you flourished, I think it, it taught employers a lot about the employees and how they could work with them. And of course, this was a digital culture thing because we all use technology, just like you and I are now, to communicate. So suddenly we had Zoom, you know, which no one had ever heard of, really, until the pandemic came along. And then all of a sudden, we're all used to Zoom conferences. And there's a whole different etiquette. And, you know, I mean, there are things that are great about it and things that are not so great. But, you know, some of the issues you get in a neurotypical situation with body language and all that sort of thing is, you know, greatly reduced on Zoom, which I think helps in some ways. I, one thing I came across the other day, which uh, I found very interesting, is, you know, this uh, open AI that is around at the moment that people are playing with a lot. I'm in a, well, I'm in several groups of autistic people, actually, but one group, they started to use it to enable them to express things about autism in situations where they wouldn't be able to uh, speak very well. So I think that has helped a lot. And, you know, so you can get the AI to, I mean, for example, one that, they showed me was um, they said what's wrong with calling autism a superpower you know you often hear people say that autism is a superpower I think this is quite a problematic idea so they asked the open AI to explain what the problem was and it did and it did it in a very uh, articulate and uh, clear way and they then used that you know so it said what they wanted to say but they let the open AI do it so this to me is digital culture in operation I mean, with, with AI, the question it seems to be is not so much, you know, will the AI take over the world or all, the, all these typical questions that people ask. It's more about how do we develop a relationship with AI? As people, how do we develop a relationship with robots? And, of course, this sounds like a typical autistic problem, doesn't it? You know, how do we develop a relationship with other people? You know, these alien creatures who we seem to look like and supposedly are like, but and it turns out we're not like them at all. We're completely different. And it's the same with the AI. I think the AI, learning to establish that relationship, that can help with employment. Another area is um, interviews. I think digital culture can help there. The online interview, it seems to me, cuts out a lot of the issues that you get in a face-to-face -face interview. And so can be beneficial. It can also have drawbacks. You know, I'm not wanting to say it's a solution to everything, but... I mean, for example, HR departments are trained to observe people's body language. This is pretty standard HR guidance in most organisations. Do they make eye contact? Do they have good body language? This is the idea is that then that demonstrates you're a team player or a, you communicate well. Well, obviously, for autistic people, this, is, this basically loses you the job immediately because body language and eye contact for many people, autistic people, are, are a problem, you know. So doing it online avoids that to some degree. But I, th I think the biggest thing really is has been the way that digital culture has changed attitudes. So I'm thinking of social media, but also of the web generally. When I look at the attitudes to autism today compared to even five years ago, 
or 10 years ago, and certainly 20 years ago. I think there's been a big cultural shift, you know. Now, that has partly come from autistic people being articulate for themselves. It's partly come from developments in, in uh, psychology and medicine and so on. But I think a lot of it has to do with the kind of identity discussions that go on uh, on social media and the way that this, the digital culture kind of draws people together. There's always been a paradox in my mind of the idea of a group of autistic people getting together, you know, because you think, well, actually, we don't really want to get together, you know, we'd rather just live apart. But the digital culture enables us to get together. So things like currently Discord, Twitter, I mean, Twitter's changing, but, you know, Twitter for a long time was very a fertile area. Instagram, TikTok, all these kinds of social media, I think do enable autistic people to share experiences, to gather, and to uh, do so in a way that allows them to interact more easily than if they were trying to do it face-to-face -face with all the environmental and sensory issues and indeed social communication issues that that would entail. So that's a long answer, sorry, but uh, it's a big subject, digital culture. Yeah. <laughs> Definitely is. You know, I read something that where you said that you believe, um, you know, as part of the work that you do, the importance of being transdisciplinary. So how is yeah. that? I, I wanted to learn a little bit more in terms of how you feel like that principle has kind of guided you in, in your career. Okay. So this is really interesting to me personally. I think it's also interesting from the point of view of science and academia generally. But, but you know, starting with the personal, I have a, a feeling you know, that the education system is the wrong way round for autistic people. I think autistic children should do PhDs because the, the thing about education is it starts off general. You know, you, you study a range of subjects and you gradually focus and focus and focus to the point where you're researching something that is entirely unique to you, right? And that's the PhD. That's the original contribution to knowledge, which is the thing that you know that nobody else knows. Now, if you're autistic, it goes the exact opposite way, in my experience. You start with a very focused interest in one, two, maybe three topics. And then gradually, over time, as you exhaust all the knowledge within those topics, you start to look out and move beyond and move beyond and move beyond. And that's really the path that I've followed in my career. So I started being very specialist in certain topics. And cliche that I am, my topics were music and computing. Um, you know, I mean, in the 1970s, computing meant mainframes. So I programmed some mainframes, you know, big computers in universities, but also composing music, which I started to do at the age 11 and studying music. I was also very interested in nature, wildlife, you know, as well at that time. So I guess I had three interests. The wildlife kind of fell away, but the other two persisted. Gradually, you know, as I began to, in music particularly, focus on the music that I was especially interested in and becoming more and more knowledgeable about that, I started then to connect it with other art forms initially. So like visual arts, literature, and so on. And then that expanded, started to expand into other areas and other areas and other areas. So eventually, after a long process, where the education system tried to funnel me the other way, 
I arrive at the point I got to probably in about 1997, thereabouts, where I actually started to work in a very visibly transdisciplinary way. At that time, it was music and computing that I combined. So I created a music technology degree that had, was kind of half engineering and half music. And students did, you know, they could do a BSc or a BA. And they went down, uh, you know, they had a shared core curriculum that was half music, half computing. And then they could specialise more on the computing side or more in the music side, depending on their preference. Then I widened that out uh, more broadly into creative technologies. Uh, you know, became a kind of model in academia of somebody who works in a transdisciplinary way. And what I would say is that I'm really undisciplined. You know, I don't understand these disciplinary divisions because there's so many obvious connections. And I get kind of baffled when people insist on, as it walled garden around their their uh, discipline. Because, uh, I, it, you know, firstly... It, I don't think it makes sense. Sorry, go on. Do you look at it, when you're saying that, it makes me think about social norms and being autistic and not always, like, necessarily complying to those norms. Do you kind of look at that in terms of academia for you? Yeah. Yeah, very much so. So I will go and talk to a room full of, uh, name any discipline, doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. I will go and talk to them. Now, I'm aware when I go in that I don't have the depth of specialist knowledge that they have, but I'm also aware that I know enough to talk to them effectively and that we can find common ground because there are certain common things that crop up in every, every area. From scientifically speaking, the problems that we have now are so complex that you can't solve them just by a single discipline. So the big challenges that are around in the world today are so complicated that you know you could just approaching them from a single disciplinary perspective is just not good enough you have to involve other disciplines so i've been in kind of a battle with academia for well the latter part of my career i'm pleased to say that academia is gradually changing there is a lot of lip service paid to the importance of interdisciplinary research and that does translate sometimes into real interdisciplinary research but not always. <laughs> Sometimes it's just rhetoric. It's a fascinating area. I should perhaps distinguish between transdisciplinary, multidisciplinary and interdisciplinary. Do you want to hear that distinction? Let's go um, for it. <laughs> <laughs> we, it doesn't do to be too rigid about this, but uh, broadly speaking, interdisciplinarity is where you one discipline adopts the methodologies of another discipline and you end up with some kind of hybrid discipline. So, for example, uh, biochemistry or ethnomusicology. So ethnomusicology, where you take the, the methods of eth ethnography or anthropology and you apply them in music, you know. So that's typical interdisciplinary. Multidisciplinary is what you get in medicine a lot, where you have lots and lots of specialists looking at the same problem from multiple different perspectives. That I would call multidisciplinary. Transdisciplinary is sort of different again. That, that's a state where you're kind of above, beyond all disciplines. So you, you're kind of, you don't recognise any disciplinary boundaries and you kind of move freely from one area to the other, driven, I think, by your interests, you know. And like 
I suspect every autistic person, if I'm interested in something, I'm really, really interested in it. And if I'm not interested in something, I'm really, really not interested in it. In, in other words, I have no time for it at all, you know. So with me, it's very much all in or, or not, you know. <laughs> yeah. Briefly, uh, we were t you were talking about earlier about autistic people getting together in groups and sometimes um, that might not be something that we want to do. But, you know, as part of our careers, you know, many times we'll end up at uh, conferences. And recently you wrote a wonderful article about going to a conference. And like for so many of us, that it can be a very overwhelming experience. Um, yeah. And you talked in the article about sharing your access rider with the particular yeah. conference organizers. For those that may not be aware of what an access rider is, can you talk about that and how it was uh, helpful to you? Yeah, sure. This was suggested to me during lockdown, actually, by Joe Varent, who runs a, an organization called Unlimited. And I thought it was an excellent idea. And the one I've written, I think, has become a model for a lot of others. So people are probably familiar with riders that celebrities and rock stars give to venues you know it's the classic thing where you know i'll only have a certain type of water or i'll have m m's but they have to be blue or something like that you know these are typical funny riders you know that so it's a set of conditions basically so an access rider is telling the the venue or the organization you're you're visiting what your needs are and i divide mine into things that i absolutely have to have essentials and things that I would like to have desirable so you know if I don't have any of the desirables I can still do the conference but uh, I'm probably not going to have many spoons in the evening and it might even be damaging but the essentials I just cannot function unless they're right what I found is that the conferences I've sent this to they've been three so far and they've all been big events have been absolutely delighted to receive this and I think it's a very good idea for autistic people to try and write these things as well, because I don't know about you, I found it hard in the past to articulate to others what my needs are. So it was a really good exercise for me to sit down and think, now, what actually, when I get to a, co a conference, what actually is the problem? Where do the problems arise? What do I need? What can I get by with? What works for me? What doesn't? So I can give people a... Do you want me to read some of this? I've got it in front of me. Please do. Okay. So I've said uh, essentials. I've said I, I don't drive, but I will travel on public transport. I've given my dietary requirements, which are gluten-free, low salt, no caffeine. I've said I require disability support in airports. I can't balance in the dark, so some kind of low-level lighting is always necessary. I need a dimly lit, quiet space to retreat to at any venue. I put it in brackets, doesn't need to be anything special. But, you know, I think there has to be a quiet room for me, and I suspect for most autistic people. I need occasional short breaks to avoid loss of spoons, and I cannot listen to music for long. Speakers at conferences and events must use microphones or live captioning. This relates to my hearing. I think we're going to discuss in a minute. I must avoid fluorescent lighting, irregular patterns on walls and floors, and spaces with too much information or bustle. I must avoid floral perfumes, air fresheners, and other artificial smells. 
I need captions on videos and in live conferencing, and I follow routines, so I need to be able to take lunch at one o'clock precisely, for example. Those are the things that I reckon to be essential. Desirable, I said I, I prefer natural light and spaces with clear edges and corners. This is a proprioception issue, which we can talk about if you like. I've said, please avoid shining lights directly into my eyes, especially when speaking from a podium. This is something that happens quite frequently in my experience. I prefer to see in advance pictures or videos of the places I'm going to, to reduce anxiety. I, I don't know about you, but that really helps me if I can get photographs or a video, preferably. I prefer low arousal room colours. I like to have advance warning of any fire alarms or other unpredictable and loud events. I prefer there to be no applause. Um, flappy hands, but I can put on noise cancelling headphones quickly if they, people do applaud, so it's not a disaster. I prefer it. I lip read, so I prefer to be able to see people's faces when video conferencing, and free flowing networking events are very difficult for me. I prefer one to one or private contact. So those are my desirables. That list I sent out, and they went to great lengths to meet all my requirements. At the end of my first talk at one conference, the audience applauded and the organiser was absolutely devastated. I said, I'm so, I'm so sorry we've ruined your day. And I said, well, actually, it's OK. It didn't last very long and the room's got lots of carpet and it sort of deadened the sound. So it was all right. But I said, you know, if we can get people to do the flappy hand thing after, from now onwards, that yeah. would be great. And I was fine, you know, so that wasn't a disaster, but a fire alarm would be for me because it just completely obliterates me. I can't, I shut down in a, if there's a fire alarm. So that would be a disaster. But anyway, you get the idea. Each one of those things took a lot of thought about, you know, saying that and what, what actually, you know, is this really a problem? And then, of course, you realise, yeah, it really is. If there's a fluorescent light in the room, basically, I can't really function. It's that silly. Yeah. I'm wondering, Andrew, after writing that out, you know, your, your access needs for this conference, has that helped you in any way when you go into the community in other places to better kind of support your needs in those places as well? Yes, very much so. So it becomes a kind of a list, a template that I refer to constantly, really. And when I'm talking to others, like in Digital Culture Studio that I mentioned earlier, the director that I work with is very concerned to make sure it's a, a welcoming environment for me and that everything is comfortable, you know. So he's referred to this quite a lot. And when people come in and I talk to them, I'm very upfront about being autistic, you know. So I will refer to this list. And frequently, I mean, for example, the other day, I was at an internal conference at the university. We have our own little conference centre, and they had a load of those scent dispensers, you know, those things that puff out a little puff of scent every three minutes or so. Well, of course, uh, I mean, that's just death as far as I'm concerned. I got them to take them away and put them in a cupboard. Yeah, insist on these things because I know it's going to cause me a problem. And, I, uh, yeah, I'm referring back to the access rider then. Now, I wanted to talk to you a bit about oral diversity. Um, yeah. From what I understand, you have uh, hearing differences, and you started the Oral Diversity Project in 2018. Can you tell our listeners a bit about this important project and how and if it's grown over the last uh, four years? It's grown massively. Now, I'm going to be talking about hearing for a bit, but 
this does relate to autism and you'll see how soon. So aural diversity starts with the idea that everybody hears differently. This is just a fact. So, you know, all our ears are uniquely shaped. So each person is like your fingerprint. You know, your, the outer flap of your ear is unique to you. There are aspects of the inner ear that are unique. And then our hearing changes every day, you know, so you might have a cold, for example, and you're, you're, or you might have earwax and your hearing's muffled or something like that. Everybody's familiar with that. And then as you get older, once you're past the age of about 20, 21, your hearing starts to decline. This is called presbycusis or age-related hearing loss. So everybody's hearing is in a state of continuous change. Nobody hears in the same way, right? So what's extraordinary about this is that when you look around at all the acoustics, at design, at technology, concerts, you know, you name it, anywhere that there's hearing, what you find is that everybody refers to a standard that assumes that we have equally balanced, perfectly good hearing. And this goes back to a set of experiments that were done in the 1940s through to the 60s on students, actually measuring their response to loudness is called loudness contours uh, this is set as normal hearing and the assumption when things are designed is that everybody hears like that but of course that's only about 17 percent of the population hear that way so you know the truth of it is that it's that's a minority who hear in what is deemed to be the normal way and when i say normal i mean i'm referring to the international standards on hearing which refer to what they call otologically normal persons. In other words, people with normal hearing. So it turns out that everybody's got different hearing. Well, that's kind of not a surprise, but it's just that no one really talks about that. So that's what the project's about, is exploring that difference. So we're particularly interested in the sixth of the world's population. You have a, a recognizably, medically recognized different uh, hearing. So, you know, on the one hand, there are people who are profoundly deaf, ranging through to people with um, hyperacusis or misophonia. Hyperacusis is an excessive sensitivity to sound, particularly usually everyday sounds. For example, the noise of a, a spoon hitting a coffee cup can be really painful for somebody with hyperacusis. Misophonia is an intense emotional response, negative response to a particular sound. So it's not that there's anything painful in the ears, it's more that uh, you have this, uh, it triggers some kind of emotional response. And there are many other examples of that kind of thing. Now, when you come to look at autism, what you find is that autistic hearing is noticeably different from an early age. Now, this is something I've realised about my own hearing, particularly in relation to music. So autistic people tend to be able to focus on detail and hear things that other people can't hear. So, for example, I used to hear electricity. I'd hear lights as well, quite loud. Most people can't hear them. I say used to because I've lost a lot of my hearing now, but that's, that's another part of the story. And then autistic people have an ability to decompose the soundscape, to take the, the sound of the world around them and to focus in on particular aspects of it and to hear that kind of detail. And again, this is not normal you know people don't listen in that way on the whole this is a, dis a distinct difference so uh, aural diversity from musical side we've staged concerts 
by hourly divergent musicians for hourly divergent audiences. So we've got many different ways to listen to the music. For example, vibrating floors. So you, use, you listen through purely through vibration. Visual cues, streaming to devices, so streaming to hearing aids, streaming to specialist headphones. Haptic devices, so like having balloons or feeling the instruments as they play. So we've done a lot of that kind of work. In fact, we're doing a, a, another concert in, in January like that. But we've also done a lot of work with audiologists, with medical people, uh, with acousticians. Uh, so conferences that I, we were talking about a moment ago, those were acoustics conferences that I was asked to address on this topic. We're changing the standards. We're affecting the law because the notion of a standard individual has to be challenged when it comes to oral diversity. Uh, we have this notion in, in the UK of the man on the Clapham omnibus, who is always used as a, an example of a typical person. Well, of course, what I would say is the man on the Clapham omnibus is going to hear differently. So, you know, you, when you talk about noise, you've got to specify what you mean in that context. We're influencing design and architecture, engineering. So I'm working with a, an organisation called Arup, who are responsible for a lot of uh, acoustic design in architecture around the world, looking at how we can improve environments for people with different kinds of hearing. So this all affects autistic people, I think, because sound is a big trigger for a lot of autistic people. It's a big factor in how you experience the environment. So we've got a whole research strand in this project on autistic listening. You know, just even like, you know, thinking about restaurants where, you know, you, you walk in there and, you know, there's all these tables, all these different conversations going on. People, you know, bussers are bringing dishes back into the kitchen, back and forth. You'll hear the kitchen. And then on top of that, a lot of restaurants will play music, you know. Mm -hmm. Have you learned or are there, is there any research about autistic listening or, you know, sound in, the, in, the, in these environments? Yes, there is quite a lot, actually. I mean, it's like most things relating to autism, it's a work in progress. I think it's true to say the restaurant environment is one of the most challenging environments from the point of view of um, listening for autistic people but also for lots of other people too i mean you know if you're getting elderly to hear one person speaking in a room full of people talking is really difficult so it affects all, all sorts of people in different ways but, but i think for autism yeah that's a really challenging environment and i guess that a lot of autistic people would either not go in there or would find restaurants where they can get a quiet corner or they, they know what they're going to experience in that space yeah, a lot of restaurants tend to go for shiny surfaces as well, which have become quite reflective. And often the design of the interior of the restaurant is disturbing. I find it all kind of adds up together because for me, I mean, I'm triggered by everything, basically, by sight, by sound, by smell, by taste, by proprioception. So, you know, you can, kind of, you can combine all these things together and they all, they all combine to overwhelm me. So I'm synesthetic as well, which a lot of autistic people are. Do you, uh, should I explain what that is? Do you think? Yeah, yeah, for people that might not be aware. Okay, so synesthesia is the scientific term for 
Well, it's defined as confusion of the senses. What it means in practice is that experience one sensation in terms of another sensation. So, for example, I will experience some sounds as colours. For example, the e open E string on a violin is red for me, and it always has been red, you know. So whenever a, a violinist plays an open E string, I see the colour red. So this can this this obviously affects my composition, but it affects the way I experience the world in general. It's not that every sound creates a colour, but a lot of them do. And then this can also affect taste. So, I, I mean, I told this story this morning, actually. During the lockdown, my hair got pretty long, and my wife went out and bought me some products to damp, you know, sort of grease my hair down a bit. And she gave this this tube of this stuff, and I looked at it and I said, I, I can't possibly use that. It tastes foul. And she said, What? What are you talking about? <laughs> you, haven't, you haven't even opened it. How can it taste? What, what you, you're not tasting it. And what it was was the. Um, there was this kind of purple colour, which was very synthetic, you know, like they use in hair salons and that kind of thing, on the on the outside of this tube. And that purple colour just produced the most revolting taste in my mouth. I mean, it was really strong, you know. So that was an example of synesthesia. And I think a lot of autistic people experience this. I wanted to talk about something else you wrote about not too long ago, and that was aging as an autistic person. You know, you discussed in this article about your flow state as stimming, having a purpose, routine, action plan to just get you out of bed um, and through each day. I know as I've gotten older, I've learned to honor my limitations, and that certainly can affect my routine. So wondering, how has the aging process affected your routine as, and as a result, probably the rest of your life? Well, first of all, I should say congratulations, because you've achieved something I haven't managed to do yet, if you're respecting your aging process and accommodating that in your routines. It's a but process. It's a process for sure. <laughs> I'm not there. I'm just being, I'm very aware of it these days. Right. right. Well, you're quite right to be aware of it, I think. My wife is quite concerned about me for this reason, you know, that my inability to make allowances for the fact that I'm older than I was and thinks that uh, I don't deal with it. I work too much and that I do things, you know, in the same way that I did them when I was, you know, in my 20s, which is probably true. That's potentially a problem and I'm not sure really how to deal with it. I, I, I'm sort of working on it. Mostly what I'm doing is keeping going, you know, which is what I've always done. I mean, in 2009, when I lost my hearing, I was diagnosed with Meniere's disease, which is a balance disorder. So I was having vertigo attacks lasting five hours at a time with continuous vomiting. And I was having those three days a week. So this was very, very destructive. And yet my autism insisted that I get up in the morning and follow my breakfast routine and do the things that I have to do, you know. And I, I credit my autism with getting me through many years. I mean, I had treatment as well, which uh, eventually stopped the vertigo. So that was, uh, you know, I, it's not all down to autism. But I think a lot of people with many years, you know, basically give up on life. They retreat and can't function. And I, I totally understand that because it is really, really debilitating. 
but I just carried on, you know, the autism drove me onwards, and I think it's still happening. But, you know, I have difficulty on Sundays, I have difficulty on Christmas Day, because I don't know what these days are for. Uh, we, we've tried, <laughs> tried very hard to create a routine for a Sunday. Uh, it never quite works for me. I've got some way towards it, but I, it's really difficult to make sense of Sunday. And I, I end up getting quite depressed on a Sunday and feeling that uh, you know I don't understand life at all. And Christmas Day is just a nightmare, basically, on every level. I, I, I can't. I really hate it, but don't don't say that too loudly because it's Christmas coming soon and everybody's feeling festive, right? But I find it very difficult. You know, what am I going to do as I get older? Well, we have to figure out a new routine and accommodate that fact. I'm not dealing well with this at all, really, I'm afraid. No. So you've put your finger on a problem here. <laughs> Beyond this interview, Andrew, how can people learn about you and all the great things that you're doing? Well, I have a website, andrewhugill.com, which I update frequently. I also have a blog, which is uh, autisticprofessor.uk, which is specifically about autism. So that one could be interesting to read. I'm on various social media. Um, I've recently started a Mastodon account, um, given what's happening on Twitter, so people can uh, follow me there. But I am still on Twitter as well, as autistic underscore prof. People can find me fairly easily. I'm always happy to respond to emails and uh, chat to people about anything. I think one of my decisions when I got diagnosed was that, you know, given that I was 60 then and I'm 65 now, what am I going to do in the light of this for the rest of my life? And I, I think one of the things that I want to do is to improve life for other autistic people. When I look at young people, I kind of envy them because they have a diagnosis, you know, young, and so they they know a lot more about themselves than I ever did. I grew up being autistic but not knowing it and struggling enormously. So I kind of envy them, but I also recognise that life is really, really difficult. So somebody like me, who's in a kind of prominent position, made it through to my uh, venerable years, I think has a responsibility to talk openly to advocate uh, and to try their best to help others. And I, I think the chain, the cultural changes that are happening at the moment with regard to autism, you know, people's attitudes, are a case of lots and lots of small victories you know, that are happening at the local level. Uh, and people, it's not just awareness, it's about acceptance. You, know, you have to get neurotypicals to accept autistic people, and that only happens really at the local level. You can institute all the policies and strategies you like, but you can't change people's hearts and minds. You know, you, it's often done person to person. So that's something I can do. Uh, so I'm trying to do that a lot uh, at the moment. And this uh, podcast interview is an example of it. I'm trying, trying to speak out and be public and help others, basically. Well, I loved you talking openly to, to me today. Um, really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for... Um, spending your time um, with me today. You're welcome.